This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you who support us at patreon.com slash thetomeshow, or shop at DMs Guild, or Amazon using our affiliate links. Welcome to Gamer to Gamer, now hosted by me, Jeff Greiner. Once a month, I'll interview a member of the gaming community because gamers are awesome and the world needs more awesome. With me in this episode of Gamer to Gamer is Matt Cernet. Welcome. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, so here's the deal. I'm playing around with the format of Gamer to Gamer. We've gone through, I'm the third host of Gamer to Gamer now, uh, and so I've decided to just take it on uh, myself. And uh, so I'm playing with the format a little bit, and so the plan is that we're going to have a, a chat to get to know the guest a little bit, get to know Matt, and dig into who he is, you know, deep down in his soul, uh, and then we'll wrap up with sort of a lightning round and see how quickly he can get through my 20-question lightning round. All right. All right. So, so we're going to start off with uh, a, a, a very easy slash extremely difficult, depending on how introspective you are, question. Who is Matt Cernet? Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. So, uh, gosh, um, I am somebody who has been fascinated with uh, D&D and fantasy and story and stuff like that for the, my entire life, um, basically. So, I mean, my, my earliest memories are... Uh, Playing with um, fantastical toys like things like He-Man and stuff like that. I, mean, I remember even you know kindergarten uh, playing with that kind of a thing, and uh, and then you know moving forward. Um, it, I mean, I started playing D and D when I think I was eight or so, and uh, gosh, it's just sort of rolled on since then. Very good. And and you work at Wizards of the Coast currently. So, so what's your role there at Wizards? So, uh, I'm a designer, but but that's that's sort of just a, a catch-all title for for people that do a whole bunch of different things uh, at Wizards. Uh, my my role at Wizards is basically the, to be the the lore master for the the brand for the various worlds of D and D and Forgotten Realms in particular. And so, uh, I sort of support and help to inspire the work of a whole bunch of other people. And then I also add um, elements of myself, uh, you know, writing in various books like Volo's Guide to Monsters and stuff like that. And essentially what I do is try to make sure that we are canonically consistent as well as putting sort of the best uh, version of uh, the brand forward in its various platforms that uh, syncs up with the history of D&D as well as sort of modern tastes and stuff like that. So if there are lore contradictions or inconsistencies, we get to blame you? Well, (laughs) (laughs) ultimately, yes. If if in new products there are lore inconsistencies, yes, you can can blame me. So, I, I mean... In theory, I uh, I get to watch everything that goes out of the door for that kind of a thing, um, and then it's you know I, I send my comments back to the, the designers or you know typically it's it's Chris Perkins who's handling the product at that point or maybe an editor, 
um, you know, Jeremy Crawford or uh, one of the freelance editors or something like that, where I send my comments back on the, to them and talk about sort of canonical inconsistencies or um, other problems with the text. And uh, so, you know, does everything that I point out get changed? Not necessarily. You know, it might be an error or it might be a difference of opinion or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, and also, uh, sometimes we are deliberately uh, changing and violating canon in order to um, establish a new norm, or the canon of the past is inconsistent and we pick one path forward. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might be able to point to a book and say, but in this book it said this. And, you know, we can say, yes, but in this book it also said that. And you have this other thing and this other thing. So. So did you come into this as a, a big fan of the realms who was really deep into the lore and that's how you ended up at Wizards? Or were you hired at Wizards and then made yourself into a, a realms lore fiend in order to keep it all straight? Well, the short answer to that question is both. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the long answer is sort of my, my superhero origin story. Uh, so when I was about eight years old... Like I said, uh, my friend introduced me to this game called D&D that he had just uh, learned about. And um, he just got the books and started reading them. You know, and I'm, he was eight years old and I was eight years old. I don't even know how much he read of the books and understood them. You know, clearly at the time, I don't remember much, understanding much about it. But I remember we, we put together cardboard dungeons um, with, with boxes and actually, like, cut little traps and put toothpicks in them and, you know, pet, you know pit, pits and you know little things like that and we put doors through the different rooms so you were building homemade terrain uh, yeah yeah and we we had like actual he actually had D &D toys like from the 80s you know the the sort of rubber toys then we were playing with them in that cardboard dungeon i remember that very distinctly and uh that was my friend chris boba and uh so you know he got me into D D. uh and we from there on we we're playing with uh, a bunch of different friends throughout the years, um, and I—I uh, I think it was probably the year that it came out, which was eighty-three, eighty-five. I'm gonna—I'm gonna mess that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was uh, Chris, the Crystal Shard uh, came out, and I—I mm-hmm. I read that and I loved it. And um, so, sort of the, my next purchase was. Um, Maybe some of the other novels, but uh, I also got my hands on the Forgotten Realms Atlas. Ah, uh, I have one of those. Barely, barely still held together, but I have one of those somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and and so what? I, what I, so I had read a bunch of the novels, and then I got a hold of the Forgotten Realms Atlas, and it was it was amazing because you know I was seeing all these places that I saw in my head, and they looked you know I I, I remember talking to my mother about that you know I'm like hey these places look exactly like I imagined them in the novels. Uh, and my mom was like, well, you must have a really good imagination. I was like, I was, even at the time, I was, I was like, a, you know, a young kid, I was like, eh, no, I think it's because they, they were really describing this world really well, you know, and it's, it's, it's sort of this place that's alive in many people's imaginations. Um, so that's, I mean, I was always fascinated with Forgotten Realms and D&D for, you know, since a very young age. And um, I was maybe about, 12 or 13 when I was at a friend's sleepover and uh, we were talking about the D&D products that we had because we, we had just been playing and so on and it was really the first time that, that either of us had really realized that 
people, you know, made these products and uh, wrote them and got paid to do that. And it was like this, like, holy crap, maybe I could do that. We were talking about that, you know, hey, wouldn't it be cool to, to be a D&D designer and an author and stuff like that? And his dad walked by the room and was like, Jake, put that out of your head. You're never going to be a, a, a Dini designer. That's a silly idea. You know, you're going to be a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he was talking to my friend Jake, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, my, my friend Jake was sort of, you know, okay, dad, et cetera. But I thought to myself, you know, well, why the hell not me? You know, what, what's stopping me from doing this? Like really? And, and so, you know, since th- that time, I really, you know, was thinking about it, right? Like, how can I do this thing? And so I, I went to, to college and, um, you know, tried to get as far away from home as possible. Uh, and I ended up in, um, Pennsylvania, uh, and which wasn't really all that far, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh cause I grew up in New York, uh, mm-hmm. state. So, um, but, uh, you know, I pursued an English and art major, and at a certain point, I, I realized that even you know doing that sort of dual major thing, I, I wasn't really going to get to where I wanted to go. I needed to actually figure out a way to become a D and D designer. And at the time, um, you know, the, there wasn't really a great pathway that you know you couldn't intern with TSR or you know there, there, there didn't seem to sort of be any way to become a game designer sort of mm-hmm. magically. You know, and there weren't any sort of game design courses at any colleges or anything like that. And so I thought to myself, you know, well, I, I subscribed to Dragon and Dungeon magazines, had, had been a subscriber for many years. And, um, you know, why don't I try and uh, become an editor of, you know, and then, you know, maybe if I apply for a job with them as an editor, uh, I can work my way into becoming a game designer. Cause if, and I knew that in my hometown, Syracuse, um, there was a magazine editing major at uh, Syracuse University where my father taught. So that seemed like a, a logical pathway. And I was right. You know, once I I I, mean, I, I worked um, my way through school there, and uh, at one point I even used the the school assignment as an excuse to go to the TSR offices and interview uh, Dave Gross and Pierce Waters who oh, were wow. of uh, um, the magazines at the time and uh, and then uh, you know everything seemed great you know, I had set up all my ducks in a row and I, I, I was going to be a magazine editor and get a job at TSR and then while I was still in college uh, TSR just sort of went dark you know, there was a period, I don't, maybe people don't really remember, but, you know, TSR had right up until the days that the doors closed, basically, it was, it was pumping out products like mad. And, you know, as a, as a rabid D&D fan and collector, um, you know, I, I had bought virtually everything, you know, I, I, I had Hollow World, I had Jacondor, Isle of War, I had, you know, in addition to Ravenloft, Spelljammer, Forgotten Realms. Boot Hill? What about Boot Hill? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like yeah. every. So, uh, you know, I and, and I just you know consumed all that stuff. And so when I was at college in, in Pennsylvania, I brought down two steamer trunks full of D and D stuff, um, and you know that was sort of the nexus of um, you know my participation in, in a in a gaming club that started there uh, when I was there. And it was it was a lot of fun. But uh, 
So, you know, it went dark, TSR went dark, and I was like, hey, what's going on? So I started to, to investigate, and I couldn't figure it out, and I was doing taking journalism classes, and one of the classes was basically like, you know, maybe that should be your project. You should investigate what's, what's going on with TSR. So I, I reached out to Dave Gross and Pierce Waters and tried to, to get the skinny on what was happening to TSR at the time and got nowhere. <laughs> I was completely stonewalled. I had no idea what was happening. And, of course, you know, uh, it, it, with the, the wisdom of history, I, I understand uh, what was going on, which is there was, uh, you know, problems between uh, TSR and uh, distributor and, you know, it was having sort of financial trouble and it had been having financial trouble for many years. And, and you know, it's that, that idea of putting out as many products as it had been putting out um, – was something that actually was hurting TSR. You know, the I joke about you know TSR's philosophy at that time was uh, basically print it until it sells. You know, mm-hmm. so the the fact that a setting like Birthright had you know uh, dozens of products made for it wasn't indicative of the popularity of Birthright. It was just indicative of this mentality that you you create all these things and you give these lines really strong support. Um, and so I think one of the things that, that people who look back at you know the that period of TSR um, with fondness and all those great settings that came out and all the great products that came out and all, you know how much you know whether they're a fan of Ravenloft or you know. Um, Mask of the Red Death, the, the Gothic horror version of Ravenloft, or you know, Hollow World, or Dragonlance, or so on and so on and so on. What, what they don't realize is that the, you know all those great products that were being made uh, were actually, to a degree, hurting TSR mm. and its ability to even sustain itself as a company because they were just making too much of that stuff. There was a glut of it in the marketplace, and um, that that ultimately came back to to you know, bited in the ass, and um, that's essentially when uh, Wizards really rescued D&D uh, from Oblivion, essentially, because, um, you know, it, it saw, it, I mean, I think there's a perception that Wizards of the Coast is, is sort of the evil suits um, who, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, the corporate, uh, you know, bad guys who came and um, took D&D away from TSR and that's just that's just not at all true um, mm. you know, it really was uh, you know um, an attempt basically to get this save this brand from oblivion and and really keep D&D going uh, which uh, you know Wizards thankfully has done uh, especially with uh, great success with 5th edition so mm. okay very and, and so that I mean you this was the story of how you went from being a Forgotten Realms fan into into or and in, in lore master into uh, the person in charge of lore, but we haven't gotten to you actually working uh, for Wizards yet. You've dis- you've discovered right. why <laughs> why they've uh, why they've floundered and got bought by Wizards. Um, but wh- where did so, you come into the picture? So once I had actually finished my my college and uh, was ready to sort of enter the job market. Um, I uh, didn't immediately get hired by Wizards. I went to work for um, Men's Health Magazine, of all things, and uh, I worked as a fact checker there for for quite a while. And so, um, you know, not every 
Magazine actually has a fact-checking uh, group. So uh, I laud Men's Health Magazine for its fact-checking group. Um, but essentially what a fact-checker does is uh, somebody writes a story for the magazine and they give their sources. And the fact-checker then goes back and calls uh, those sources and basically says, did you say this? Is, is this what you said? Is that true? <laughs> Just to make sure that the magazine is doing its due diligence and... Um, you know, truthfully representing uh, what people say. Men's Health um, Magazine, the epitome of journalism. Who, who I know, I know. Isn't it shocking? <laughs> so, uh, so I, I did that for um, a while, and uh, it was a really fascinating job because, you know, you'd vacillate basically from, from two extremes. Uh, people giving you bored responses of like, yeah, 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 to people be giving you angry responses of like, of course, well, yeah, I interviewed you pe- with you people already. Why are you talking to me again? And who the hell are you, right? Because I'm not the journalist they talk to. So it was, it was a weird job. Uh, I would have to say the highlight was talking to, um, oh, I think I didn't get to talk to the man personally, but I talked to uh, his wife, and it was... Um, Jack Lalane, the oh, wow. the the exercise guru, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know he's I don't know how old he was at the time. Um, I don't is he still alive now? I don't even I know. I don't even know. Yeah, <laughs> I want to say something happened to him rec- like a few years ago, but I don't know. But uh, so and it was a fascinating conversation because I had to um, you know basically do all the sort of normal confirmation things of like, did you say this and and. He was doing laps in the pool at their house at the time, and his wife would basically shout from the phone, "Yes, if you said this," and he would shout back, "What? Yes, if you said this, yes." And then I'd write it down, yes, and then <laughs> back and forth like that for about a ten-minute conversation. I also got to talk to uh, uh, the the inventor of the DeLorean. That was a brief conversation, but um, that was interesting. But anyways, uh, um, I then uh, applied for a job at Wizards and, as a, a sort of junior editor of the um, Dragon Magazine, and I was right. Uh, you know, people don't normally apply to Dragon <laughs> Dungeon Magazine with actual magazine editing degrees. Oh, wow. And I'd uh, I'd have I already met uh, Dave Gross and Pierce Waters um, before, so that we had a little bit of a relationship beforehand. So I got into the job and it was extraordinarily hard for way too little money um <laughs> the magazines uh were a a really really tough business i mean mm-hmm. i i would you know i worked my way f- up the ladder uh over the years um to editor-in-chief at, of dragon magazine and it doesn't matter where you are and that chain of command the magazines were extraordinarily difficult business just because of the the constant schedule and I mean there's never a rest mm-hmm. at all you're always looking months ahead uh, you know and doing work constantly and uh, you know right up to the deadline every month um, so uh, the but one of the things that happened while I was doing that work at Wizards was that there was uh, for whatever reason a a PDF library of um, TSR's products and some of Wizards' products was made, and uh, it was it came to my desk uh, a, as a stack of like 
I don't know, eight or ten CDs just mm. filled with, you know, gigabytes of these PDFs. And it was kind of like, you know, hey, does anybody want to use this? Does it? And I, I grabbed it, you know, I, I took it and I was like, uh, yes, I'll take those, you know, and... You know, nobody else seemed particularly interested. There didn't seem to be any reason that it was made, you know. <laughs> it was just, just for posterity. Yeah, it was just one of those projects that just happened for some reason. And, uh, you know, I got them onto my computer, and it was like jacking into the Matrix. Mm. Um, you know, it, guns, lots of guns, right? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, not only did I have, you know, all of the, the you know, my home library of products and stuff like that, um, but I, I, mean, I, I had virtually everything, virtually every novel, you know, virtually every product, you know, in PDF form from, you know, Wizards to TSR going back to the, the original, um, you know, white box and stuff like that for D&D. I mean, and not only that, uh, the, you know, the vast majority of the files had already had text recognition done on them, um, although some of the files were too bad of a scan for it mm-hmm. to work and so on and so forth. But um, so with the, uh, the search capabilities uh, available on a Macintosh, you could do global searches of all of this data. Um, and so, you know, I immediately just started sorting everything. I put all the Forgotten Realms stuff with Forgotten Realms stuff, the novels with the novels, you know, and, and set, you know, s- sort of sorting it out by edition and, you know, uh, the novels by author and, you know, all that kind of a thing. And so, so very quickly I could uh, use that as a tool to look for information sort of in whatever products I wanted to and Obviously, having read many of these products um, already, you know, I knew where a lot of the information lay. And so, uh, like, I started that probably in, oh, maybe 2002 or so, perhaps, mm-hmm. at Wizards. Maybe it was 2001. <laughs> And I kept that library with me even as I shifted over to Paizo when the magazines went over to Paizo. Mm -hmm. And I kept on using that as a resource in my work on the magazines. And uh, I was doing freelance for Wizards as well. Um, And then when I was hired back by Wizards to be a designer, uh, you know, which was ultimately my goal, um, you know, I kept that with me as well and kept on using it. So, I mean... I've kind of become a master of this this library. Now, at Wizards Now, we have basically a version of that library um, that is even more complete than it was, and it's one that um, everyone on the team has access to. Mm. However, uh, it's, it's not searchable in the sort of shared database that we have it on, so you have to download the whole thing onto your computer, and it's it's many gigs. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> so not many not many people have chosen to do that, and uh, the search functionality on a PC, which many many of our team members are working off of, is not as strong as the Mac search funcon- functionality, mm-hmm. and so you know it's not as easy for people to access that that data, and then a lot of people just don't have the familiarity that I have. So, and in, you have to add to that the fact that there are the gremlins, the 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 problems with the search engine that or the PDFs themselves that uh, makes um, finding the data difficult. And of sure. course, there are 
there are gaps in our knowledge in our, our in our library. So there's a series of um, maybe a hundred issues of of Dragon and or fifty or so of Dungeon that we just don't have in our library. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some novels that we don't have in our library. There are a few um, RPG products we don't have in our library. Uh, and so essentially, um, having spent so much time with this thing, uh, I kind of just slowly worked my way into the position that I'm in, which is kind of the de facto lore master of mm-hmm. D, where... When other people can't find it or figure it out, you know where to look. Right. And and honestly, it's usually faster to just ask me. <laughs> sure. You're the go-to. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so... Um, you know that's that's how I got in the position that I'm in, and and what exactly that position is on a day to day basis really changes day to day. But in general outlines, uh, you know, in a general outline of of my work, it's as products are RPG products are moving through um, the system. I have various opportunities to kind of step in and review them and uh, sort of read them and and mentally ask questions about things. Um, and try and make sure that everything in the lore is accurate. Uh, and you know, so if, for example, um, I run across uh, a description of, you know, a uh, half orc who wears an eye patch, and but he's not actually blind in one eye. He he just uses that to keep his one eye adjusted for uh, darkness, like a pirate. Mm. I can say first, my first reaction to that is. Hey, does that is that actually true? Is it true that pirates actually switch eye patches or to adjust their eye for darkness? And then what happened is my second instinct is actually wait a minute. Do half orcs have dark vision? Wait, do they even need that eye patch? Thing? <laughs> you know, and and so I have to kind of I'm verifying both you know um, real facts about like sort of historical medieval stuff mm-hmm. of which I've taken an interest in on the years just obviously as an aside thing to being interested in fantasy uh, and then also verifying um, you know facts about the game and, mm-hmm. and the canon product and I do a similar thing with uh, the teams that work on the electronic games that we have that are in production and uh, and then at the same time I'm working on uh basically providing information for products in the future, our future plans. So if we decided to do a product about Thay, uh, I would do a research project about Thay and trying to sort of iron out the canonical kerfuffles beforehand before we get there. Hmm. And so highlight put together most, a Bible of that, of that lore. I, exactly. Highlight the most important elements and that kind of a thing. And I'd also be working with the art directors to kind of show them and help them um, display what's cool about Thay and, and help inspire ideas with the, the story team and the art directors about sort of like how it looks and feels and what the stories will be about and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. So for those of us that are hardcore like Realms fans, uh, you know, the Candlekeep type of folks, you're, you're our ally over at Wizards. Is that the story? I believe so. Okay. You, you, <laughs> might, you, might, <laughs> you might get some disagreement from the Candlekeep folks. So, and I, I think a big part of that is that um, the the there's a perception that essentially everything that's been written for Forgotten Realms is canon, and so you have to figure out ways to make it all 
canonically intact and mm-hmm. perfect. And I want to say to the Candlekeep folks, I totally agree with you. And that is my first instinct every time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. However, um, there are irreconcilable in- inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's also elements of lore and ideas in the writing of the past that either aren't um, sort of kosher this day and age, or mm. they're they're not um, really uh, up to date with the kind of style of entertainment uh, that that the medium is providing. So, for example, of the not kosher thing, um, there's a lot of talk about fest halls in right. previous products, right? And 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 there's there's a lot of jokes online about how many. Fest halls there are on the Forgotten Realms, <laughs> and you know, in it's there's very little <clears throat> doubt that in 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 the the conception of the realm at of the realms at the time, fest halls are something akin to a whorehouse, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it's it's not that you know there's there's a very thin veneer between those festival the term fest hall and whorehouse. Um, they're often used as gambling places and restaurants and inns and so on as well. But there you go. Yeah. Um, and that's just not the version of, of D&D that we want to present going forward. Uh, we won't necessarily get rid of the term Fest Hall. That's not our goal. Uh, nor will we necessarily um, strip out every reference to the idea of uh, what are colloquially called courtesans and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, I mean, it would be hard to do that and still have Ed Greenwood writing in the realms, right? <laughs> so. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, we we do want to, uh, you know, modernize things to a certain degree. So, sure. like, you know, if we're going to talk about what are effectively prostitutes at uh, some place, um, you know, we're going to include men because why not? And, mm-hmm. you know, if we can avoid talking about that place as a place of prostitution, we probably will because it's really not the kind of thing that we're going for with the right. D&D going forward. Um, and then for sort of the, the different mediums, there's going to be alterations that are made. There's going to be shortcuts that are made. So for example, uh, if we were to do... Oh, I'll give an example from the past. Uh, actually, that's, that's easier. So if you look at the uh, maps that are presented in video games like Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2, etc. Uh, those maps are not um, consistent in the sense of where the locations are presented on the map or the distances between them in the same way that you know the, the products in the RPG are consistent. Mm. Uh, and so we'll make a we'll make exceptions for the medium in that sense. Similarly, there's something like Neverwinter where it, you know, Neverwinter is a sprawling MMO that has essentially a constant desire to add more stories and you know adventure hooks and ideas and so on and so forth, and uh, they basically all occur simultaneously. You, you can you can go and do the the um, tyranny of dragons and then do the giants content or the reverse, or you can do the giants content first and then go back and do some of the original game content you know there's there's no real it's all timey-wimey it, it doesn't right. 
you can't assign sort of like on such and such DR, this happens in the game of Neverwinter because, you know, it's always basically in flux and whenever anybody wants to sort of pop in and do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make adjustments to uh, the medium um, for how sort of canonically consistent things are. Okay, so so speaking of, of recent history then, <clears throat> I have I have my own uh canon question as a realms fan um demogorgon was re- recently rampaging around in the underdark and Correct. and uh he was at some point uh violently banished from faerun uh how did that happen because there's two stories about how that happened <laughs> so um the well so are you talking about violently banished in the terms of uh well, of, in, the, of, in, in the novels, Driss takes him out, and in the game product, the the players take him out. So, so how did how did Demogorgon actually right. get sent back? So that's that's one of the things that's really fascinating about the canon of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, when you up until now, essentially, so um, previously, uh, in, in the especially in the TSR days. The novels and the adventure products, or, or, or sort of source products for Forgotten Realms in particular, but other settings as well, assumed that there was an advancing timeline and put products in that advancing timeline. So you would have a novel that comes out that says it's in such and such DR, and then the next you know, RPG product that comes out that comes out after it is in the next year DR or maybe a couple of years later or something. And it might relate events of that novel as de facto finished. Um, when another RPG product comes out and uh, it's referring back to events that happened in, say, an RPG adventure um, from previously, it also assigns um, de facto... Uh, ideas about like how that was adventure was completed and who um, did it and so on. So it was nebulously often with adventures. Adventurers did X, so or Harpers or something along those lines. So for example, um, you could go play the adventure where um, the ruins of of not ruins uh, the hordes of Dragonspear, mm-hmm. and um, and that was an adventure in early second edition. And then later products assumed that Hordes of Dragon of Spear happened, and some adventurers did X, Y, and Z, and therefore the product would relate that adventurers did X, Y, and Z. Any novel that touched upon Dragon Spear would also relate that kind of a thing. And so there was this great uh, sort of illusion of canonical consistency. And I say illusion not that because um, those things weren't uh, canonically consistent. Um, most of the time, they, they were. Uh, I say illusion because it was a really difficult time to do that work. Uh, mm. We now have the capability with the PDF library to um, attempt to be more canonically consistent. However, in the past, designers literally had to go to the shelf, pull off a copy of the book and the adventures that might be related to the topic that they're working on, and read all that material, digest it, and then incorporate it into that work. Similarly, novelists um, would theoretically be doing the same thing. However, it was a lot harder to get a novelist who wasn't in the building, didn't have all that library, to actually do that work, which is why, canonically, novels are most often the thing that violates the canon of the RPG and other mm-hmm. novels, because 
they the novelist doesn't have the capability to do that work. The editor who's editing the novel doesn't um, go back and change you know a hundred different things in the novel because of the the canonical consistency with X, Y, and Z. They may they might not even check that library, right? So it was it was basically uh, incumbent upon the designers of the RPG products to maintain that consistency and move that timeline forward. So that gives the illusion of this evolving world and and that's one of the things that really fascinated me about Forgotten Realms mm -hmm. and one of the things I deeply loved about the realms. However, as a setting for a, you know role playing uh, rather than as something that you just read and enjoy, it made the realms really, really, really difficult to deal with. Right? You you could see this in um, even before uh, you know fourth and fifth edition. People were would often complain about the Forgotten Realms and you know how you have to read all this material just to play in the Forgotten Realms. Mm. And and I don't think that that's necessarily true. You really don't. You need to you need to, as a DM you need to just sort of choose a place. Pick your place, play your thing, and not worry about the canon. You just—I mean—you don't have to worry about the canon as a DM, but right. people people had the perception that they did have to worry about the canon, and especially with the growth of online uh, forums to talk about things like Candlekeep and so on, there was sort of this growing perception that essentially you had to care about all this stuff in order to sort of run a proper Forgotten Realms campaign and do it right, uh, and. And you know, I don't have I don't have a bone to pick with people who want to play that way. I mean, I love that. I, that's the way I would run my campaign. Um, but the it it made a sort of a problem for the product. So that mentality, um, to a degree, crept into the department at Wizards, which is why effectively the spell plague or not the spell plague, but the, no, it was the spell plague happened with fourth edition, and. There was a concept there that essentially will sweep the boards clean. We'll start out with a fresh Forgotten Realms, and we'll 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 have a hundred years between us and the past stuff. So we won't have to worry that much about all what happened in the past, and we'll get a fresh start. And uh, you know that never made sense to me <laughs> because you're a fan of the realms. But yeah. <laughs> You know, like I, I, I thought about that, and I, I, I found that just absolutely mind-boggling. Like, how do you're just creating a gap that then people will want to fill and and need to fill in order to understand what the events of the, you know, like how does this this fix things? Like, I, I didn't understand it at the time. Similarly, if you go back and like look at third edition, one of the the uh, I'm not going to name names, but one of the things that that I I found infuriating about third edition was. When I went past uh, a coworker's office and uh, saw him cutting snippets out of the Forgotten Realms map, you know, just pieces of it, and then taping them together, and I, I asked basically, you know, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? Oh, I'm getting the map to fit on a poster map. By just what? removing chunks. By just removing chunks. <laughs> like, uh, and I, huh? Like what? So, um. Flash forward now to to fifth edition and uh, the Sundering. So I, I think if people who are familiar with the realms and and you know uh, especially the Candlekeep folks and and so on will will see that as yet another oh the edition changed and there's a world shattering event and so stuff happened that changes everything and so on and so forth. 
and yes, to a degree that that is true. Um, it, the the sundering was essentially a world shattering event that helps explain some of the changes between editions, and effectively a lot of the changes to the map again because we went from the third edition map or, and fourth edition map, which aped the third edition map, back to sort of the classic second edition um, vision of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know when we were looking at that, uh, what we wanted to do with Forgotten Realms moving forward, you know. Did we want the Forgotten Realms to be a place with shard mines and, you know, uh, shifters and all of these elements that crept into the Forgotten Realms mm-hmm. uh, over the fourth edition period? Or, or did we want to move forward with the realms that felt more true to its core and to, to what it was when it was sort of its most popular version of itself? which honestly was the second edition period. And the clear answer was the to us was to get back to the heart of what the realms is and to really what you know the vision of the realms was was that that Ed had when he created the setting and um and then to you know I mean not negate the stuff that was expanded upon and created by others but to you know accept that but get rid of some of the stuff that got in the way of that stuff. So, okay, we, we have this idea. We don't, we don't want to keep giant plague things on the map, plague lands on the map, and we don't want fl- floating earthbergs in every picture of the Forgotten Realms because that doesn't feel like what it was. And, you know, we, we don't want to have Kalashtar creeping into the realm. Well, I, I don't mm-hmm. think any Kalashtar crept in, but <laughs> there, right. there were things like... Um, you know some of the weird fourth edition uh, bird races and you know Goliaths and all these different things. So the devas and that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, you know, like we want to get back to the to what what realms really feels like, and uh, you know we aren't going to say that you know now there are no Goliaths like that's silly, of course not. Um, but we want to we want to focus on what's what's sort of essentially the Forgotten Realms, and our two choices then are basically move things forward somehow with the setting as it stands or basically go back to literally the the gray box and resurrect the setting from there. Hmm. And, you know, of the two choices, moving forward with the Sundering story and and creating that that sort of compelling narrative for what's going on and um, sort of moving forward with the with the stories that had been established uh, in the realms from the gray back box on really felt like the the better choice between the sort of you know the the radical decision to go all the way back to the the gray box era and just basically do a reboot um, and I, I think I think we made the right choice you know you, you never know I mean maybe, maybe right. people would be real big fans of, of a, a reboot but you know, uh, especially in our, our new sort of era where everything is getting rebooted all the time forever. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the choice that we made. And, you know, I really think that a lot of the, the Sundering novels were, were really fantastic. And uh, I think that a lot of the stories that we're telling now in the realms are really fantastic. Um, I love a lot of the, the, the story building that we're doing now, um, which to many degrees up, up until now is, is still... Uh, behind the scenes, but um, you know, I, I love if if you listen to uh, Lore, you should know the the idea of um, uh, Laryl being the new open lord of Waterdeep, mm-hmm. 
and uh, which, if anybody know, doesn't know, lore you should know is a segment that you do with Chris Perkins on uh, Dragon Talk, the official D and D podcast. Correct, and uh, you know, and and the sort of that his or her relationship with Lord Neverember, who's the the ruler of uh, Neverwinter, and so on, and how he was pushed out. I mean, I think there's lots of fascinating, fun mm-hmm. stories that are being told in sort of the fifth edition present day era of the Forgotten Realms. Which let me circle back around to what I was saying earlier about uh, the canon of the past versus the canon now, which might I think eventually answer the question that you originally asked. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know who killed Demogorgon. But <laughs> so, um, the the sort of the as I was saying, the canon of the past had this this rolling thing of years, and one of the things that that did was was do very strange things to the setting, where you would actually watch uh, characters advance in level just because the year rolled around. Hmm. So you can go back and look at the books and see that the, uh, you know, the, the king of so-and-so is seventh level and read a book a few books later and he's 17th level. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's like, what, what happened there? Why, why, are, why are these things happening? You know? and, and there would be growth like that that um, was very strange, but was just sort of because of this assumed role of years and things happening. And, and well, of course, they must have gained levels in the meantime. Uh, and the complexity of that, the growth of canon that happens because of that, and the weirdness of having just sort of like some random adventurers, we don't know who the heck they are, did X, Y, and Z, um, solved that problem. You know, it's sort of like, you know, all oh, the ro- the one ring, oh yeah, some, some people did that. Who, right? They, they, they just defeated this massive evil in... Uh, in the world and threw the ring into the volcano. Like, who was that that did that? Oh, just just, just some adventurers. Um, so, with the setting as it stands now, we have a um, a looser uh, sort of understanding of the timeline for how it works in various media. So, for example, in the novels, they're going to pin things down and in particular dates because you know the novels are telling a story where you can see the passage of time mm-hmm. uh, in the adventures there's no assumed ending there's no assumed success uh, for many of the adventures we, we did that initially with a couple of them I think Tyranny of Dragons has an assumed result per, to, to a degree um, definitely uh, Murder, Murder in Baldur's Gate the, the initial sort of semi 5th edition adventure mm-hmm has an assumed result. Uh, but with our newer adventures, we're not necessarily saying, and so-and-so was defeated at, on this date by these people, and the result is this. Uh, and so the reason for that is, for the RPG audience, as people who are playing the game, as opposed to just reading the, the books as fans of the setting, we don't want to sort of invalidate their games uh, and make them or make them play them in a certain order or uh, you know mm-hmm. kind of create the sense that essentially there's only one right way to play D&D or some proper way to play the Forgotten Realms we will really want to give people the freedom to, to do what they want and tell their own stories and you know we want to remind people that, that that's 
that's the purpose of D&D. It's, it's to get together with your friends and, and create awesome stories and have an, an awesome time. And so the, the fact that in the novels it occurs one way uh, and in, frankly, Neverwinter it occurs a different way mm. and uh, in the adventure it occurs in whatever way it played out at your table mm-hmm. is, is by design. We want to give people the, the ability and the freedom to... Uh, create their own stories, and then also to experience that story through a different lens elsewhere. So, for example, uh, the giant story in Neverwinter, they don't go to all the places that you go to in um, the Storm King's Thunder and do all the things that you do in Storm King's Thunder. Uh, they didn't have the, the capability to, to create all of the assets and do all that kind of a thing. Sure. They have their own sort of slice of that story, their own version of telling that story. Similarly with uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen and so on, where Tiamat's in, in, the, um, in the setting, uh, they don't do the whole adventure the same way, but they, they, they wanted to have, rightfully, that cool fight with Tiamat, right? That, that's just really cool. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they do it their way in the adventure. It does it this its own way. And in, in any novel that references those uh, stories, whether it be Elemental Evil or, uh, or I'm sorry, Princess of the Princess, Apocalypse, yeah, yeah or uh, you know the Hordes of the Dragon Queen, or etc. Um, they're going to reference it in their own way, and that's that's a difference in medium that I think that fans of uh, the Forgotten Realms from its second and third, and to a degree fourth edition um, incarnations aren't used to seeing. Uh, it's very common in other media, right? You don't worry too much about how, you know, Spider-Man or the X-Men in a novel versus Spider-Man or the X-Men in a comic or that other comic series or that other series or that other comic series or the TV show or or that other TV show, right? You know, or the movies, right? They they all sort of express the characters and the stories that they want to express them in, in their own way. Well, to a degree, each medium sort of gets its own canon. Right. So, exactly. like, the TV show has a canon, and and the the comics have a canon, and whatever, right? Right. Exactly. And you know, so to the degree that um, it's possible with the RPG, I want it to maintain uh, can- canonical consistency mm-hmm. with past products. And like I said before, my first in- instinct is always everything written previously is canon, whether it came from a novel an adventure, a source book, or an online article, or the magazines, you know, it is it is all um, canon up until the point that it proves itself not to be. Right. Um, and then decisions have to be made. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's that's okay. what I do. That's how I got there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, so we've talked a lot, and we haven't gotten to the lightning round yet, and I did want to, t- to ask briefly because we've talked so much. A little bit about your game. I, I assume you're playing some games. Uh, so, so what are you playing, and, and what are you know what are you what are you doing? Are you DMing? Are you playing a, a character? Are you doing a board game night? What, what's your gaming world look like right now? Okay, so uh, I am not currently running a game, but I am I am playing uh, in uh, John Files' uh, Spelljammer campaign. Hmm. Uh, so we, we play on Mondays, and my character is Finkel Glamjet, uh, who is a, a, a human sorcerer um, slash uh, captain of the ship. And uh, that is, as Spelljammer tends to be, a wild and wacky uh, game with nice. lots of strange characters and so on. 
And uh, John Files sort of taken the, his own sort of made his own version of Spelljammer, which isn't exactly the same as the the classic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we're using fifth edition rules and so on and so forth. That's awesome. Um, I want to yeah, I want to play Spelljammer. Make that make that a thing. <laughs> Do that for me. Yeah, I know, right? Spelljammer is so cool. I well, I mean, it is and it isn't. Like I right. I love Spelljammer in so many different ways because, like, one of the great things about Spelljammer is that uh, it is both conceptually awesome and really goofy. <laughs> it's kind of gamer world, right? Yeah, and and then so like the the balancing point between those two things um, sometimes tilted really poorly towards goofy. <laughs> so so you know you you get fun goofy things like the fact that uh, you know uh, tinker gnomes invented spell jamming by like creating a chain driven tomato squasher right <laughs> you know and it's like what's like oh well that fits tinker gnomes awesome tinker gnomes are in space because of a chain driven tomato squasher got it um and then sort of towards the cool side the idea of like you know the spell jamming ship of of a of dwarves is literally like the top of a mountain with this, you know, giant dwarf face and arm carved in it, mm-hmm. with a holding hammer, and it's floating around through space, and it's like, God, that's cool. You know, you have the the mind flare nautiloids that look cool. The the elf ships are all strange and alien, and so on. And then there are some of the goofiest monsters or the weirdest descriptions of worlds. I mean, I kid you not. I think one of the worlds in the Forgotten Realms uh, sort of um, planets of the, or uh, yeah, the solar sphere. system. Yeah, the solar system oh, yeah. is uh, a desert planet with terrasques and giant gold beetles on it. Because <laughs> the terrasques need something to eat, and they eat exactly gold beetles. right. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and so there's there's just a bunch of terrasques out there on that planet, and they're eating giant gold beetles, and and it's like what, what? huh? <laughs> you know, uh, there's there's a planet that I kind of like, but it's still goofy, which is uh, a planet of all halflings, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's super hot at the equator and has jungles at both poles that the halflings live in. Uh, and they're like these savage halflings in these jungles. Um, I forget the name of the planet, but, you know, and, and it's because of that sort of uh, Star Wars or Star Trek idea of, you know, when you go to another planet, you you, you basically paint it with a broad brush, like Hoth is just ice planet, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the worlds in Spelljammer got that same sort of treatment. Uh, but, you know, often with weird and strange results. Are you uh, sure? And so, you know, it, it's this, you know, like, and then you look at something in Spelljammer and you, you say essentially, okay, giant hippo men, is that super goofy and stupid or is that awesome? <laughs> I fall on the... Awesome, right? Like, <laughs> men with a, with a huge blunderbuss gun, like I'm in. Give me that. And in um, my head, they all speak with a British accent, but <laughs> right, because like you know the, the pictures of them, you know, with their with the monocles yeah. and stuff, right? Like, but other people look at that and they're like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And <laughs> and so with a setting like like Spelljammer, I I think uh, you know we at wizards will if we ever resurrect Spelljammer in some form. There's going to be a lot of debate about, oh, yeah. <laughs> about how, where do we go and how far how far do we make it. Although, yeah, yeah. although you did, during fourth edition you did it with Gamer World and it kind of had the has the same uh, you know strengths and flaws, right? Exactly. Yes. And I, I think with with Gamma World it's one of those things where um, 
the 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 flaws are the strength, right? Like, like you can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. You, we could have theoretically, we, we we if had we the foresight and uh, the brilliance of the people who made Fury Road, uh, made Gamma World into something like Fury Road. But um, you know, part of the fun of Gamma World has always been just the weirdest characters that you can possibly make and the most bizarre things like, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, animated rose bush that can talk that we using a stop sign as a shield and mm-hmm. you know god knows what else so well i want to hear more about your crazy campaign and story but i think uh, we're we're rambling on in time so, so uh, we definitely want to make sure we have time for the lightning round so i think we're gonna take a quick break and mention our sponsor here noble knight uh they have an online store that specializes in finding out of print products even while carrying the latest hotness. My pick for this episode is Murder in Baldur's Gate, and it's an adventure written during the 5th edition playtest that is compatible with multiple editions uh, and was written in part by our guest, Mr. Cernet. So, Matt, uh, can you tell us anything about this adventure? Yes, absolutely. So I was the, the lead designer of that book, and uh, let's see, at the, at the time... Um, there, I think there was the potential for a, a Baldur's Gate um, game, or we were we were at least uh, thinking about the the release of um, the uh, the the re-release of the Baldur's Gate uh, games that were were coming out, and so you know we wanted to go back to Baldur's Gate and uh, deal with the story there, and so um, it was uh, sort of bringing the the murderous god ball uh which is key to that that setting and uh mm-hmm. um those stories in the games uh, into the the world again and then one of the things i really wanted to do was uh take a look at what Baldur's gate history was in the game as a setting and extrapolate where that could take us in the new edition and and so on so uh, if you look at Baldur's Gate in the the electronic games, uh, they are it's it's a it's a one ship town. It's literally so mm. small that you there's only one boat in the harbor that's the only thing that can fit, and there's about maybe twenty buildings in it. Mm-hmm. But if you look in the RPG, it's a much more vibrant setting uh, with lots of information about um, you know the the various uh, um, dukes and the the sort of divisions between the, the parts of the city and so on. And one of the things that, that was highlighted to me was the, the class divisions in the, the city. So, you know, when we're going to represent the, that adventure, I really wanted to make it come alive for people. And so that's why it's got that cool fold-out map uh, with uh, the, the city that is sort of... Uh, uh, tourist guide to the city on one side for the players, and then on the, the inside of the... the um, DM screen, uh, it's not a map, DM screen, is the yeah. uh, uh, is really information rich with lots of, um, you know, ideas about, you know, what's where in the city and, and so on. And then the product itself is a very sort of flexible sandboxy adventure with, with mul- multiple results that are possible. Um, and so it's, it, I thought it was a lot of fun to put together. Uh, Steve Winter um, helped out a lot with that, um, did, did a lot of the writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it, it turned out to be a really awesome product. Yeah, and Noble Knight has it available uh, in multiple conditions. They have a, uh, an excellent rated uh, condition uh, copy of it available right now for t- only $12, which considering that nor- it normally sells for like $35, like $12 is a pretty good deal. So. 
people should definitely go check that out. And I want to let it go to a word from Noble Knight right now. Ah, hey, it's me, Snark. I don't really like Noble Knights that much, but NobleKnight.com is okay by me. You know why? They got tons of products for me where I can just be hiding in dungeons and stuff like that. Also, it's it's really, really cool. I get to find all these bestiaries that I can fill my dungeon with and all kinds of goblin miniatures. So check out Noble Knight. They'll even buy old gaming products that you aren't using anymore, and they're awesome. NobleKnight.com. Make sure you tell them the Tome Show sent you. All right, we are back with Matt Cernan. It is time for the lightning round. Uh, I've got 20 questions that I want to ask. And, and since you are the, the first guest as I've taken on the hosting duties for Gamer to Gamer, I want to uh, – I've come up with these 20 questions for the lightning round. And I'm going to time you and see how quickly you can answer all 20 questions. Uh, okay. And, and then we'll compare your time to future guests. Oh, okay. So no pressure. So, yeah. Yeah, so as you can tell, I tend to ramble on about... <laughs> uh, the, okay, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. I'm yeah, one, day I'll, one day I'll have Ed Greenwood on here, and it'll be like seven hours of him answering. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll feel good about my performance, Yeah, that, that'll I'm be sure. great. So, all right, I'm going to hit uh, play on, uh, start on the timer, and then I'll ask my first question. So, uh, number one, do you prefer to DM or play? I would say I prefer to play. Uh, what was your first RPG? D&D. Which edition? First. Uh, name of the person who introduced you to RPGs. You mentioned him earlier. Yes, Chris Bova. There you go. Uh, number four, create a title of a book that is on a mad wizard's shelf. Um, the... Heights of Magic of All Nine Schools. Ooh, there you go. So, n- five, name a game or adventure that you haven't played but want to. Mm, I would say The Lost City. I, I desperately want to play that, but never got the chance. Okay. Um, six, the last game product you bought. Uh, for D&D or in general? For, in general. Let's see. That's probably the Labyrinth board game based upon the movie. Oh. I didn't realize there was a Labyrinth board game. Yeah, it was done with uh, something along the lines of Kickstarter. I don't know if it was Kick- or GoFundMe or something like that, but okay. it was, uh, it's, a, it's a really neat, neat product. I don't there know how fun the game is yet because I've yet to play it, but <laughs> it go. looks really awesome. Awesome. All right, seven. Uh, make up a name for an NPC. Mmm... Let's see. Oh, gosh. Names, they're not that hard, but then it always stymies people like mm-hmm. me. Um, <laughs> Ipthipikius, the diviner. There you go. Ipthic- I don't even know if you could say that the same way twice. Ipthipikius. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, name a PC that you have played and not the one that you're playing right now that you mentioned earlier. Okay. Confession time. I played Dritz. You played Dritz. Wow. Yeah. Number nine. Uh, oh, go ahead. I also played um, Raphael from the Ninja Turtles in D&D. <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right. Uh, number nine, your favorite house rule. Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I play it mostly by the 
books. Uh, so, I mean, honestly, I guess my favorite house rule is if we need to look it up, let's just say something and move on. Okay. <laughs> Uh, number 10, how long are your game sessions? Well, uh, so my, my, the games that, uh, I do at work are lunchtime game, so it's only about an hour. Okay. Uh, name a fantasy tavern. The Yawning Portal or a new one? Uh, I was gonna have you create a new one, but the Yawning Portal's fine. Okay, because that's, like, my favorite ever. Okay. Uh, 12, name a source of inspiration that has influenced your game. Gosh, there's everything. Uh, I'm just going to go with history on this one. History? Any specific history? You recently, uh, we in our chit chat, you said you recently went to Hadrian's Wall. Is that making yes. your game? Yeah. Well, so I mean, gosh, there's so much of history that's that's fascinating. I mean, I I've I have learned about everything from Vikings to uh, Native Americans and uh, you know ancient Japan and so on and and I mean all that stuff. I mean how how you forge metal when you don't have a forge you know that mm. all finds its way into into D and bits and pieces all over the place okay uh best race class combo you know i'm just a big fan of humans so i i always like playing humans and you know i think i always like playing rogues so human rogue human rogue okay best alignment i'm gonna go with chaotic neutral okay wow the crazy yeah. alignment, huh? Yeah. You're a troublemaker it, at the table. Well, <laughs> I, so a little bit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, ex- uh, experience points or automatic leveling up? XP. Okay. Best way to determine statistics? I like rolling dice. Rolling, what, what combination of dice? I do 46 drop the lowest. 46 drop the lowest, okay. Uh, make up an elven curse. Hmm. Good. Uh. <laughs> I stumped you on number 17. Uh. Will Wheaton would do it on, on, uh, Acquisitions Incorporated like it was nothing. I, <laughs> Will Wheaton, I am not, sir. As, uh, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd be in so many TV shows if I were. Um, so, uh, may you drink bad water and the fall of ill winds. Okay. Uh, favorite game book, number 18. Um, the Dungeon Master's Guide. Okay. The, the current one? Yeah, honestly. Okay. Uh, 19. Should there be devices allowed at the table? Sure. Okay. And 20. Tell us a story from your game table. Well, okay. I'm going to try and make it short. So, I uh, ran a lunchtime game at work a while back, and the premise of it was a small town where... Um, the pieces didn't know it when they arrived, but uh, they uh, it was under sort of the influence of a group of hill giants nearby. So the first thing that happens when the pieces start the game is they start in a tavern because that's a classic. And the thing that's not a classic is that uh, suddenly a cow comes flying through the window and smashing through and lands on the table and, you know, patrons scatter everywhere. 
and it's because an angry hill giant outside just kicked it through the will the, the wall of the building and uh the the residents of the town had to scramble to get out the big head and the big head is a giant paper mache head and costume that they stand in so that they can pretend to be a hill giant and they have to talk to the hill giant and convince it to sort of you know back down and uh, so that was part of the whole scenario was basically the hill giants are angry because something was stolen from their cave and the PCs have to figure out what and why and they have to sort of masquerade as the big head sometimes and <laughs> it was a lot of fun that's awesome alright great job that is, you came in at seven minutes and five seconds. All right. So you set the bar, and we get to see if anybody can beat you in the future. Cool. All right. So that was fun. Uh, I want to say thanks uh, for to you for for coming on and being on the show. Uh, where can people go if they want to find out uh, more about Matt Sarnett and, and keep in t- get in touch with you? Well, you can find me at at Cernet, S-E-R-N-E-T-T, on Twitter. And uh, if you do that, be aware, uh, I am a political animal, and that's most of what you'll see. (laughs) Um, But as far as, uh, you know, my work, uh, you can find that kind of a thing with uh, Google search or going on Amazon and Mm -hmm. plugging things in there. And um, obviously, I'm I'm on... uh, the uh, our D&D podcast on Lori Should Know, and I occasionally do articles on Dragon Plus as well. Okay. And any any uh, things coming up in the near future that people should you know be looking out for you? This is your this is your chance to to promote anything you want to promote. Let's see. Ah, uh, I have to be aware not to promote things that we haven't announced. <laughs> So I definitely want to put a plug in for again for uh, Volos Guide to Monsters. I mm-hmm. think that's a fantastic product that recently came out, and uh, I love what we did with that, where it really revealed a lot of the lore and backgrounds to some of the key monsters of um, the Dungeons and Dragons, and you know presented some some races again uh, for the game and new monsters and so on. So I, I love that product; it's great. And as far as a product coming out... Say, the only thing announced is Yawning Portal. Oh, yes, Tales from the Yawning Portal. Thank Mm -hmm. you for letting me know. That's right, that was announced. I think uh, Mike Morrells did a great uh, job in his video interview. You should check that out if you haven't seen that, um, where he describes the the contents and uh, the the format of the book. So I I don't think I can do a better job than Mike did promoting that. So definitely uh, poke around online and and find that video and and, um, see what he has to say about uh, Tales from the Ironing Portal. Sounds awesome. And when when do we expect that to to come out? Now you're you're testing me because I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I can look it up too, I suppose, but... Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. All right. We we work so many years ahead of time on projects that, uh, you know, it just... I understand. All right. Well, I also, beyond thanking you, I want to thank our sponsor, Noble Knight, and our Patreon patrons over at patreon.com slash thetomeshow, who usually get a first peek into the kind of things that we're working on, as well as they get to provide the feedback and guide sort of where the show goes and what we do and what we cover. Uh, and of course, I also want to thank everybody who heads over to thetomeshow.com and clicks on the links to Amazon or DMs Guild. When you do that, you get the same experience, but we get a few coppers out of it. Uh, this has been my first episode of Gamer to Gamer, so I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to give suggestions on who we should hear from in the future, shoot me an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the Tomes Biz line at 919 Biz Tome. 
919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. This has been Gamer to Gamer with Matt Cernet, because sometimes you have to get out from behind the DM screen to meet people. I'm also a